Let's pod. <laughs> I can, yeah, this I is, can use my college radio voice. Literally, you sound like Lou Rawls. I prefer yeah. Jingle Bells where Batman smells and Robin laid an egg. Hello and welcome to a poten- another potentially useful episode of the T-Caps Loop Podcast. My name is Larry Burden and joining me from a construction site in your mind. It's the technologist David Noller and Danielle Brostrom. <laughs> Nothing special. Just I wasn't sure if you're going to be on, so I didn't write anything down. <laughs> Automatic. Right. I feel like I should leave. <laughs> I'm happy you're here, though. I'm very happy you're here. All right. Let's buttress the walls of this week's pod with another moment of Zen. The larger the island of knowledge, the longer the shoreline of wonder. Ralph W. Sockman. So for this pod, I'm actually kind of excited about this pod because we haven't touched on this topic in a very long time. And I wanted to start off with it, start off the topic with actually another moment of Zen or something that I was considering for the moment of Zen. And that's this, we are drowning in information, but starved for knowledge. And I think that ties really nicely into an ISTE standard. Yes, folks, an ISTE standard. We're going there. And I think the standard that you wanted to discuss, David and Danielle, was uh, standard 1-3, which is knowledge constructor. So if you guys want to take it away from there, I'm interested to hear what, what your thoughts are after a couple, what is it, we're probably two years into the ISTE standards now? You know, they've been developing over time and changing and adapting. And in in my experience at this point, they've just sort of always been there now. It's gotten to be that point where, you know, the internet has always existed and and uh, ISTE standards have always been a thing. I just, I don't know how long it's been, uh, but they've been a, a living, breathing thing for a while now. But I liked that quote you had about... Um, the larger the island of knowledge, the longer the shoreline of wonder. Yeah, and that really speaks to the heart of what I try to get my kids to to experience. I always have this thing that a college professor once said in class one time, and not to me, fortunately, because it wasn't me who who made the initial comment, but he said, there's no such thing as a boring play, movie, book, idea, thought, musical piece, whatever. Only people can be bored. The things of the world are interesting if you find them so. It's up to you to find that wonder, and I'm going to use the what you're word wonder because of the quote you just read. And I think that speaks to this to this knowledge constructor idea where we want our kids to be able to find information and curate the resources that they're using to get to this knowledge because it's a way for them to experience wonder. We're not going to be able to require our kids to dig into this information and to really have a, a, a mind of curation and to make these meaningful learning experiences, unless we can provide them with a context uh, that gives them an opportunity to experience wonder. Can I ground us in this discussion? I I just want to read the words that it says, because I think it's very purposeful. Sure. So 1.3 Knowledge Constructor says, students critically curate a variety of resources using digital tools to construct knowledge, produce creative artifacts, and make meaningful learning experiences for themselves and others. So that's the main standard, and then it breaks down into four different parts. Right. Research, essentially one about research, 
one about evaluating the accuracy, perspective, credibility, and relevance, one about curating, collecting artifacts, and then the last one, um, the last part of it is that exploration of real-world problems. Right. I think I kind of begin at the end with that, where uh, when it comes time for my students to do research, I want them to begin with the idea of what's a real-world problem or a real-world issue that matters to them. And that's part of that 1.3 point D that uh, Danielle just mentioned. Students build knowledge by actively exploring these real-world issues and problems and develop ideas and, and pursue answers and solutions. If we have that as our starting point, if we can start with a kind of a passion project, it gives the kids a, a bit more motivation to be willing to be doing things like employing effective research strategies from, from point A and evaluating the accuracy, perspective, credibility, and relevance of information from point B. And that's, I guess that's just what I meant about um, how do we get kids to do it as we start with that passion or we start with that meaningful context and then use that as a context for having them learn those important strategies that they'll use along the way. I think that's something we even need to remember in elementary. I think we don't we don't always start from that real world problem when we're doing research. We start from pick something you like, pick something you enjoy. And I think making the bridge to a problem is it's going to give a little more depth to that research. And I think that's important even for littles. Like I think of my six-year-old, she could definitely come up with a real world issue or a real world problem that affects her that she would like to research. And that would be more powerful than, than the standard. The word wonder, when we talk about buttressing the walls of knowledge and in curation, starting out with wonder and actually framing our curiosity and our students' curiosity with the mindset of wonder helps buttress all the other pieces of the knowledge constructor uh, framework. I was struck by that, David, and I want to kind of dive into that a little bit as far as how do we instill that sense of wonder so that when they start to um, use some of the tools within 1.3, they're engaged. Well, that's where I think um, we need to step away from being the person who tells the kids what they're going to write about, and we become the person who asks them, what would you like to write about? Whether it's a, a written piece or a presentation, I'd like to compare it to like a concert band performance. When these kids are in, in band with their classmates, and they're all producing something, they're creating this great piece of music, they have to agree to a way of interacting with that music. They have to um, agree that uh, they're all going to do it in the same way, that, that they are going to go along with the director to follow the spirit of that music so that it ends up being a cohesive piece. They're creating a new thing, but they can't all just do it on their own. They have to follow, they have to play their parts with accuracy, if I can use some of the words here. And they have to do it in such a way that by the time they produce this thing at the end, it essentially sounds like a single musician playing this piece. And I bring that up because they all have a common goal. Whereas the individual student who's doing one of these projects, they don't have a, a common goal with every other student. They have their own goal. And they get to decide what that focus is going to be. And by having that focus, it becomes 
much easier to ask them things like, who are the credible resources that you're going to talk to about this? So for example, a couple of years ago, I had seniors and I had a student that wanted to do a project on water quality because he was a, a Great Lakes surfer. Cool. Okay. Where are you going to find your information? Because Great Lakes surfing doesn't have a huge body of knowledge uh, that's published out there that about, especially about water quality. So he connected with some of the surfing organizations in California that are actually doing work with water quality. And he actually ended up having a Twitter conversation with the founder of Surf Riders, which is an environmental group, and then make that connection to the kinds of things that, that we could do here. And it was about solutions and about possibilities. I think your question is about how do we instill that wonder? I think it's through questioning. And the first thing that I asked my kids when we did this project was, what do you care about? What thing makes you excited or what thing makes you sad or what thing makes you angry? Because that's the thing that we're going to be able to use as a jumping off point. And then once they had that, then the question was, okay, who are the people that have the credible opinions that you might go to? And when they have a topic that they care about in that way, they're more likely to want to find those credible resources and be willing to do the work. That knowledge now has value to them. That question has instilled a sense of wonder. Yes. I, I was just going to say, I think something that really needs to be fleshed out in our classrooms, K-12, no matter what subject you teach, we have got to really flesh out that credible source piece. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the stats, I'm looking at um, something that I found this morning on Galing Context, their opposing viewpoints database, the amount of adults who regularly use social media as a source for news is pretty high. So if our grown-ups are using social media to get their news, that's where they're seeing the facts coming. And how do we talk with kids about what is a credible source and what isn't a credible source and how to decide? I feel like that's something we, we don't do enough work on with kids I, in the classroom. I think that's right. And I think in TCAPS especially, we have the resources to be able to have those conversations. We have the staff who can lead those conversations with our library media specialists. Danielle's nodding vigorously. We have those people in place. It's a matter of getting the teachers to make sure that things are done well and not quickly. Because it's very tempting to just say, just, you know, just use Wikipedia. I mean, I did earlier to look up a movie title. Um, I feel fairly confident in looking up a movie title on Wikipedia. But and, it's and I would not like to point out, might yeah. have gotten the wrong answer. Well, I, I still have to dig into it more. I wonder if one of them is a remake of the other one. It was user error rather than source error. So, well, but I think though, to your point, one of the one of the problems with using the internet writ large in research is it's really dependent upon the question you ask. Yes, and if you're not asking the right question, if you're not curating appropriately, you're going to end up potentially getting the wrong answer because you're asking everything if you're not specific with the question you're asking or having somebody or something pre-curating to some extent some of the um, potential answers, there's a really good chance that 
that search is is going to lead you down you know the wrong path i guess well we have to remember too that not only does it matter what you type in to the search but if all three of us looked up the exact same thing on google we would get different answers based on what we've searched in the past and what google thinks we want to see so the fact that our internet searches are going to be completely different even if we've got the question right I was just watching something the other day about how the logarithms work and how it's a combination of what you've searched in the past, what other people have searched, and what have been the most popular results. And popular doesn't necessarily mean accurate. It just means most common, right? And you spoke of getting to resources that are sort of pre-searched for us. We have databases available through the, the district that do that. And I do a demonstration. Every time I introduce research, I say, okay, who wants to get a head start on finding sources for their topic? And I, I always get at least one kid to go, yeah, okay, I'll do it. What are, you, what are we talking about here? And I say, okay, so let's Google. I love that that's a verb. Let's Google your topic. And so we'll put in like Canadian deforestation. I don't know. Why Canada? Maple syrup. So we'll Google that. And it'll say 2,933,000 results. And I'll say, okay, how many of those are you going to look at? Generally speaking, the vast majority of people only look at the results that are on the first page. And again, those are the most popular, but may not be the most accurate. And then I say, okay, let's go to our, our Gale uh, research database that we have access to and that our students have access to. And let's do the same thing. Canadian deforestation. And we get eight to 10 articles. We get five magazine articles. We get a couple videos. But instead of 2.933 million, it's like 13. And it's got a summary. And the kids can see from looking at the results, yes, that looks like something I'm interested in doing, or no, that's an advertisement from a company. And then they also have tabs that allow you to go to related subjects. And maybe it's not Canadian deforestation, but it's Canadian river quality. And oh, yeah, that's right. I wanted to get some information on water quality too. And so these databases, not only are they sort of pre-selected in terms of which sources are reliable, but it provides the student an opportunity to do their own curation of a limited number rather than several million. And that, I think, is one of the greatest benefits of using these databases because I can expect my kid to look through five articles. I can't expect him to look through three million. Especially when the first three are ads. Whether they're ads or just sponsored, who's sponsoring it, what's the point of view. And David, you mentioned Gail, and I am very, very grateful for our library department that led the charge to get Gail as a resource for our school district. But even if you're not in TCAPS, mel.org is an amazing resource. If you go to the yes. kids section, you'll find all of those elementary school, sometimes middle school friendly databases that are perfect for what we're talking about. If you go to the teen section, you're going to find all those databases that are great for secondary. And those are free to any Michigan resident. And I'm not as familiar with the elementary leveled databases, but I know that within the Gale resources that we use at the high school, students can even limit their search by reading level. So if they are beginner level readers, they will get returns that are 
at their level that are approachable. So they don't have to read a college-level text about deforestation if they're not prepared for that. Internet doesn't do that. There's probably a way, maybe with an advanced, I don't even know if it would even work. I'm just sort of guessing that maybe it would, but our databases do do that. Do the secondary the secondary ones have the little read to me button as well? Because I know the elementary ones have a little button that they can just listen to it. And I think that's really powerful. And I, I wonder- believe so. I would have to check it again. I know that there were some resources that there would be a speaker and you could click on the speaker and it would read it to them. I don't know if it's universal. But the other nice thing is it doesn't just get back articles. It, it brings back video, audio, images. The other nice, I keep saying the other nice thing. I think there's so many things that are great about this. The other thing it does is for an article that you're going to use, our kids don't know how to cite sources. They know they're supposed to. But we sort of live in an era where you don't really have to know all the formatting of a source. When I was coming through high school, you had to know, you had to have that booklet, you had to be able to make it up yourself. But using these databases, it provides for you whichever model you're using, whether it's MLA, APA, Turabian, Chicago style, etc. It gives you that bibliography entry. So I always tell my kids, look, as you do your research, you're going to collect these. If all you know how to do is put them into alphabetical order by whatever comes first, your bibliography gets an A because you're just going to copy them and put them into your bibliography. And then all we have to deal with is, okay, how do we cite it within the paper? And that's not uncommon. College-level databases are the same. We don't really need kids to, to learn how to create a bibliography source anymore. First comes the author, then the book title, then the whatever. We don't really need that anymore because it's, it's done for us. But the concept is still so important. I mean, when we're talking about intellectual property right Sourcing now. Sourcing the information is, is, yes. Yes. I don't think creation of the citation itself exactly. is. It's another very useful tool to get the job done that still has importance. And actually, I think you can probably focus more on why it's important as opposed to the style. Exactly. We can focus on the significance of citing your sources and actually citing them within the text and skip past the roadblock that always used to be What do I put where? Uh, What kind of a source is it? Well, it's a magazine. Okay, well, did you use it in print or did you look it up online? Okay, well, does it have one author or more than one author? All of those questions for a high school student are just roadblocks. If we can just have them select the correct one. Because that's not the important part about creating knowledge. If we get back to Knowledge Constructor, the important part isn't can you create a bibliography Uh, entry. The important part is what do you do with the information? Adding on to that, David, I think another piece we need to flesh out in our classrooms a little bit better is the 1.3C that talks about students curate information from digital resources using a variety of tools and methods to create collections of artifacts that demonstrate meaningful connections or conclusions. So that artifact creation part, it's not always writing a paper. Right. It's not. Uh, I just had my students do a uh, podcast um, as a uh, end of unit assignment, but they had to create a bibliography because they had to use sources. Whether they're creating a, uh, a podcast or a paper or a presentation or 
whatever it happens to be, the important part is creating the meaningful connections uh, and drawing those meaningful conclusions. And using these tools can help us get there. Why are teachers so afraid of that? Um, I, not part? all teachers, but <laughs> which part? <laughs> Why are teachers so afraid of that? Show me what you know in whatever way makes the most sense to you as a learner. I think there's a couple answers to that. One is because there are curriculum guides that lay out what it is that the students are supposed to demonstrate. And there's like, well, if this is the question they're supposed to answer, ask it and see what you get. So I think part of it is specific curriculum expectations. The other part of it is I think there's a little bit of that unwillingness to give up control. When I talked about my my senior project where I posed the question, what do you care about? I would talk to other teachers about that and I, I would get responses like, oh, I could never do that. That's way too broad. It's like, why? <laughs> the worst that can happen is the kid spends a day looking around for information and I help them and we decide together, yeah, this isn't going to work. Let's develop this further. Maybe let's ask a different question about it or let's broaden it. Could there be an issue with assessment as far as if everybody's out of the box a little bit, does it make it more difficult and more time-consuming for the, the educator to assess? There is an expectation that things that happen at, at, in different classes at different schools are still the same. So if a kid goes from one room to the next, he's not going to be doing something entirely different. So there, there is a little bit of that expectation of sameness, of hom- homogeneity. And maybe that's part of the driver. I thought you were talking about our state assessments that oh, I was talking about district a lot of that well, is. And, and not even that, even within the classroom, again, not a teacher. So I'm d- completely deferring to you, but just hypothetically, if I'm a teacher and I have an assignment and you've talked about this many in many different podcasts where you'll say, I'm trying to, here's my rubric. You tell me how you, how you feel comfortable demonstrating the knowledge in this rubric, whatever way you want to do it, you can do it. By doing that, you're you're not getting out your red pen. Every every paper is structured in the same way, and yeah. I'm just having to go down and you know. It allows for a range of possibilities. I feel like that's yeah. where you were headed. Right. Yeah. Thank you for making it simple. And, and the idea is, if we if we know what the standard is, these are the standards that need to be demonstrated. Why does it matter what the product is? And that's what I was fishing for. <laughs> you need that written somewhere. <laughs> and here's part of the answer. Because the scope and sequence says that in the second semester, students will write a research paper, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we we default to the base requirement. Like I said, if I can have kids do things in a different way, but still ask them to demonstrate citations and still ask them to demonstrate that curation of those resources and still demonstrate that they're using accurate, credible sources. Isn't that the goal of, of what we're doing, what we're learning from research? Does it have to be words strung in a line? I, I wish it didn't have to be. Do you feel like the more we give teachers time, time to collaborate, time to learn, time to think about how this could play out in their classroom, the more we get those kinds of products? Some of the most successful time I ever had as a teacher in creating these kinds of opportunities where we were able to 
really develop creative ways of expressing meaning and that kind of and cross-curricular and everything else was when I was on a teaching team my maybe second and third and fourth year a long time ago and we had four teachers working together with the same group of students and so all four of us shared these kids and we could have a three-hour day that was all about English and and uh, social studies where we did a simulation and then that last hour would be broken up between science and math and then some other time they would do a two-hour uh, science lab and then we would break up the other time and we were able to not only create new ways for kids to express their learning but create new ways of doing the day and it was up to us to determine how we were going to organize that time and that was some of the most creative time because we were constantly working together on how can we do it different but that was the power of collaboration we each had a prep and we each had a team prep but that team hour that we spent together every day was where a lot of that creativity came from. Figuring out uh, ways to recreate that is uh, certainly a whole nother podcast, maybe five or six <laughs> other sure. ones. And uh, maybe if we, if we could purchase that property so that our knowledge constructor can build you know, what they want to, that would be ideal. Let's, let's shelve that for a second. Is there anything else that we want to add to our, our ISD discussion? Yeah, I want to say one final thing. I feel like, as with all the standards, it's easy to glance at it and be like, oh, yeah, I do that. The kids write a research paper in the second semester. Boom, check. But I would recommend with this one, and with all of them really, but with this one, go to isti.org-standards. Look specifically at the standard for students. They have a fantastic playlist not only do they break it out and define what they mean by curate, they define accuracy, they define perspective. So they define all those words for you and they attach videos that explain the standard and the substandard more in depth. They're really, really good for getting into the meat of the standard and deciding whether you really do give it the time that it deserves in your classroom. Good call. Any last thoughts, folks? My last thought just would be, you know, understand that this idea of the knowledge creator, I think really has to start with student choice. It really has to start with the idea that the student should be in charge of the learning and the starting point of that, at least. Not only should we, but we can, as educators, we can do that. You know, you've demonstrated it so many times, David. Let's keep going to that well. All right, uh, Tech Tool of the Week. Tool of the Week is actually the library databases that we have available to teachers and students within TCAPS and the uh, other databases available through mel.org. Those things are, are great resources for getting access to uh, the information that is necessary to, to be a knowledge constructor. How is Steffi not on this pod? We've given the library media folks so many props in this episode and she's not actually here. Uh, Larry, I texted Steffi an hour and a half ago and said, what are your favorite databases? Right? And her yeah. response was, in general, for a specific age project. So I, I think she's still trying to sort through her favorite databases, which is a very tough question for Steffi. So. Yeah. To close it out, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at TCAPS Loop. At Technologist. At Brostrom DA. Uh, subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Downcast, Overcast, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or wherever else you get your ear candy. Thanks for listening and inspiring. Mm-hmm.
blah, blah. let me start over. Larry's going to edit this out and make me sound um, super fluent. This is also going to become one of those things he puts in at the end. <laughs>